Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. Thanks for tuning in BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. Today, we're thrilled to welcome Stephen Quake, professor at Stanford and co-president of the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub and serial entrepreneur to the show. Thank you once again for joining us. I'm also joined by my colleague, Chris Gradban, who will be helping out with this episode. To kick things off, Steve, do you mind sharing a brief introduction with us? Absolutely. So I'm a professor at Stanford, as you mentioned, and also had the privilege of launching and leading a new research institute over the past five years, along with Joe DeRisi, who's my co-president. My training has been in physics, and I've worked at the interface of physics and biology for my whole career, which got me into bioengineering. And so one of the first things we like to ask our guests is, what has been your North Star or the common thread that has tied your work together? Yeah, I've been very interested in how physics informs biology and you know how we can think about what's the fundamental nature of life from the perspective of physics. And a lot of that has come about from devising new measurement techniques to measure things that were difficult or impossible to measure before. And so that's really been the thread through my whole career. Great. And one other thing we like to ask our guests before we jump into their work is a question that comes from Dennis Gabor, an electrical engineer and recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. He says the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. As someone whose work has helped shape biological research around the world, tell us, what does inventing the future mean to you? Oh, that's a great question. You know, science is driven by discovery, but discovery is often driven by new measurement tools and new technologies. And so, I mean, inventing the future for me means inventing those technologies and measurement tools that will enable the fundamental discoveries that open up the future in science. Let's start by kicking things off and talk about mapping biological aging with single cell research. Taking a step back, You began your career in physics and mathematics, as you said, before making your way to bioengineering. To help provide context for our audience, can you walk us through your early career and how you arrived at bioengineering? So I did the undergraduate and PhD in physics, actually PhD in theoretical physics. At that point, I was interested in the interface between math and physics, but I kind of came to the conclusion that it felt like a lot of the intellectual excitement was happening in biology, which was undergoing a revolution. This was in the early 90s. And it was clear that biology as a field was expanding in all directions at an amazing rate. And there was going to be a ton of discovery there, whereas physics felt very mature. So I 
I kind of consciously at that point in graduate school made this decision to to try to take my physics interests into biology. And I did that initially through the field of single molecule imaging and single molecule manipulation, finding ways to stretch molecules, measure, measure forces. And that was the connection between physics and biology for me, was understanding the role of forces in, in how molecules worked, in how biological molecules worked. Because of course, things like DNA are gigantic polymers, and they are described by the same physics as, as all other polymers. And yet you can do amazing experiments with DNA that you can't do with other polymers. And so I spent the first several years of my career kind of exploring that interface. And I got interested in trying to find ways to automate biology and develop the equivalent of the integrated circuit for biology. And that led me into microfluidics, which was also just a terrific area because by having invented these very powerful and fundamental measurement tools, ways to put thousands of little valves on a chip and pumps and things like that, began to just explore all kinds of fun areas of how to use them in biology, ranging from structural biology and protein crystallization to proteomics and protein synthesis on chips to making bioreactors to doing single cell transcriptomics and single cell genomics. And so that was just kind of an awesome period of, of, of seeing where you could take a, a fundamental platform and, and how it would enable you to ask new questions in a variety of areas in biology. And kind of a little bit in parallel to that, the work we had been doing in single molecule biophysics, which had been very, very fundamental and basic, we turned that into more practical questions. Like, could we invent new DNA sequencers based on sequencing single molecules? And I did that. And that pulled me into the whole field of genomics and, and into the greater field of how to use high throughput sequencing to do basic biology and to develop new diagnostics. And so we got into very clinically applied areas, such as liquid biopsies, blood tests to replace invasive biopsies. We invented what was, must have been the first real clinical application of genomics, which is to replace amniocentesis with a blood test for non-invasive prenatal testing. That's now used by millions of women every year around the world. That led to several other diagnostics in that vein where we were kind of replacing invasive biopsies with blood tests by clever use of sequencers to count molecules within the blood sample. And then also begin combining the two, with the microfluidic tools and the sequencing to do single cell genomics. And that led to a whole frontier of basic cell biology, which we're exploring right now to, to build cell atlases as companions for the genome. And that more or less brings us up to the present day. As you've talked about and alluded to through an incredible example in your own career, today, biology is an in, in increasingly interdisciplinary approach to exploring the world around us. What are your thoughts as we expand biology to include so much more of engineering and technology? Yeah, I mean, that was, in fact, what brought me to Stanford from Caltech. I started my career at Caltech, moved to Stanford to help start a new department of bioengineering, where that was the mission, you know, build uh, a university department on this interface of, of biology and engineering and the physical sciences, which has been a great adventure. And, you know, I've had so much fun recruiting faculty and from many different areas and figuring out shared interests that we all have and on, on sort of this, this, this future frontier. And Stanford's been a great place for that. And I also think this interface between physical sciences, engineering, and medicine is one that's been underexplored. I, I've had an enormous amount of fun with the physicians at Stanford and worked on problems that I never would have had I stayed in a physics department. Taking that back to your work, and as you alluded to earlier, bringing things up to the present day, in recent years, you've had a focus in basic biological research, building atlases around biological aging and cellular rejuvenation, which have become a focal point 
for early and exciting stage research. To kick off this topic, what are your thoughts broadly on biological aging? Yeah, well, you know, the older I get, the more I think about it. Yeah, the, the, the warranty has started to run out. I think it's a very interesting question. From the physics perspective, you know, to what extent is aging a thermodynamic process where it's just like entropy and it always increases and you can't reverse it. And some aspects of aging are like that, but some aspects of aging appear to be reversible. And separating which aspects fall into each of those bins seems like a very interesting problem to me. Um, and it's driven a bunch of our work. So we started out by building a cell atlas of the aging mouse, which lets us really do a full molecular characterization of hundreds of cell types in uh, a couple dozen tissues across aging and understand which features are unique to certain tissues and which are universal and unique to certain cell types and universal across many cell types. And that's just characterizing naturally occurring aging. And then we began to get interested in rejuvenation. And there's a technique that my collaborator, Tony Whiskeray, has used very extensively called parabiosis, in which one surgically attaches two mice together. So they share the same blood supply. And if you do that between a young mouse and an old mouse, there's evidence that the old mouse starts to act younger. And some aspects of aging, the reversible ones, can be manifested there. And you can see some, some effects of that as the next step in our aging work, characterize that. Which aspects of rejuvenation for the older mouse and accelerated aging for the younger mouse corresponded to natural aging and reversal of natural aging? And we've, we've, we've managed to map all that out in, in a really interesting way. You've talked about a number of really exciting results and what that might imply for aging and cellular rejuvenation. Can you describe to us the new techniques you've been generating to enable this research? So we, we've mentioned this idea of making cell atlases. So let me start with that. When people talk about the genome of an organism, they often talk about the genome as being the blueprint for the organism. But that's not really true because for any multicellular organism, every cell has the same genome, but every cell is different, right? I mean, heart cells are different than liver cells, are different than neurons and so forth. And so the genome is really best thought of as a parts list. And different cell types will make use of different parts from that parts list. But having the genome doesn't tell you how those different parts are used in different cell types of the body. And so in that respect, it's not really a blueprint. And to really get at this idea of a blueprint of which parts are used in which cell types, we've been enamored with this idea of trying to make cell atlases. And so the idea behind a cell atlas is to make a catalog of all the RNA molecules in a given cell type. And the RNA molecules are, of course, the messages that are being transcribed from the genome and then translated into proteins. So it's telling you about the phenotype of the cell type. And to do that, we're making use of a variety of technologies, some of which I helped to develop along the way, because by and large, we do this by doing it one cell at a time. So we figured out how to take an individual single cell, break it open, count up all its RNA molecules by sequencing them, and use that to define the cell type identity. And the tools, by and large, for doing that are based on microfluidics, um, such as I was talking about earlier. And so this idea of using devices that have miniaturized channels, valves, pumps, and other things like that to capture many different cells, break them open, and label their mRNA with, with unique identifiers before amplifying the whole thing. And some of this is done with valves and pumps, and some of it is done with, let's call it salad dressing on a chip, where you mix oil and water together. But all of those came out of very early research from my group two decades ago, and have now been matured by others into everyday technologies that are used in many labs around the world to do that part of isolating the single cells and then labeling and amplifying their RNA. And once you've done that, 
then you sequence it. And that takes advantage of all the advances in sequencing technologies. And now we're using the sequencers not to sequence genomes, but identifying count molecules. And so using them as molecular counters, which turns out to be a, a really great way to use that sort of technology. And now that we have a stronger understanding of your goals, the work, and some of the results, can you walk us through what this implies for cellular rejuvenation? Well, we're still getting to that. You know, we can say now that we have a much deeper molecular understanding of what happens during aging and rejuvenation. I mean, one of the most common themes underlying the whole thing is changes in gene expression related to mitochondrial electron transport, so energy factories of the cell, and that presents a very sort of logical therapeutic target to go after. And the fact that some of those effects are reversible are very encouraging. Other aspects of aging, like the random accumulation mutations of the genome, are not really reversible. We started to characterize those, and there's a lot more work to be done. But those are aspects that are like entropy and always increase. And how those two interact is going to be an important sort of frontier area to work out. So today, biological aging research is primarily being explored by academic players such as yourself, but many primary drivers seem to be startup investments in organizations like Altos uh, Labs, Calico, and other startups like Rejuvenate Bio. So as the field of biological aging is beginning to advance in earnest, what are your thoughts on the advent of patient-facing applications? What's coming next in biological aging? You know, so the aging question falls into sort of two categories, I would say. One is lifespan extension. You know, we're going to live much longer than we live now. And the other is, are we going to live higher quality lives during our existing lifespans? You know, the lifespan extension stuff feels a bit like science fiction to me. So I'm not going to make any predictions there. And I'm not sure that's anything on the, on the near term horizon, if at all. But this other notion that, you know, we can live healthier, more active lives way up into our 70s, 80s, 90s, that seems more reasonable to me. And I think, you know, a lot of the discoveries from the basic research are going to go into that, like extending healthy life years for people and reducing kind of uh, the invalidity and fragility that comes towards the end of our lives. And so I'm very enthusiastic about that. And obviously, there's a lot of companies thinking about therapeutic interventions that might get to that. Hopefully some of those will work someday. Perhaps there'll be cellular therapy someday that'll help achieve that too. You know, the work we do is very academic and fundamental. So we're trying to understand the basic biology to empower these other commercial outfits to, to think about what it would take to have a successful intervention. Recognizing the academic nature of your work, but drawing it back to what you were saying about reaching patients. As scientists, how do you think about the responsibility to ensure equitable access to these technologies as they're developed? Super important. And you know, I think it's really important that we are mindful that the benefits of the genome revolution don't just go to the wealthy. And there's been a lot of ink spilled about that. And, and I think in many important ways, one can use these technologies to increase health equity. And the examples I, I, I cite most frequently are the ones in the diagnostic areas that I've worked in, liquid biopsies, which I touched on briefly earlier. It takes a not insubstantial amount of skill for a doctor to perform an invasive biopsy. And those doctors tend to be in big cities and hospitals that are in big cities and in wealthy parts of the country. And if you're in a rural area or less well-off area, you tend not to get the most skilled doctors there of access to tertiary care. And so to the extent that those invasive biopsies can be replaced with simple blood tests when blood can be drawn anywhere and mailed anywhere to get the answer. That levels the field and creates health equity for people. And we've seen that happen in areas like prenatal diagnostics, 
where aneurysmatesis is plunging because you can simply draw blood now, mail it off to a lab and get an answer from anywhere in the country. Similarly, for organ transplant recipients, instead of biopsying the transplanted organ, now very frequently blood tests are done. That was another thing we worked on in my lab for years, which is now commercially available. And previously, those patients had to be very close to the hospitals to receive the best care. Now they can be anywhere and their health can be monitored remotely. And so that sort of equity is not just a, a sort of laudable goal. I think it's actually happening on the ground in some important areas. Switching tracks a little bit, as we think about driving innovative research for global and human health, two organizations that you've been a part of come to mind, uh, Veblen and, and the Eleftheria Foundation. Starting with Veblen, can you share a little bit more about their mission and your engagement? Yeah, sure. So Veblen Ventures is my family office, and our mission is to put capital to work for the greater good by investing in ventures that will have a transformative and beneficial effect on human health. We mostly focus on early stage investing and you know, like to work with world-class scientists and entrepreneurs to build and grow companies. And pivoting to the Eleftheria Foundation, what prompted you to get involved and what has your role been? The Eleftheria Foundation is our family foundation. It's, it's my opportunity to do personal philanthropy. And the things I've been interested in have been to explore frontiers of science with a focus on high-risk research. A lot of the supported activity thus far has been on the interface between physics and biology, but we also do a certain amount of social impact investing, primarily in biotech ventures whose missions will ultimately reduce human suffering. So here at Alix, we believe that the key to changing the world starts first with identifying the right problems to solve. How do Veblen and the Eleftheria Foundation select problems that they're going to focus on? With the Eleftheria Foundation, we organize uh, meetings, scientific meetings, and we've done one to two a year since we started it and try to bring together world-class scientists to talk about frontier problems and help define them. And, you know, at Veblen Ventures, it's been driven by some of the people involved in the network. You know, we've done things like as the pandemic came on, we invested in a company that's making ventilators, low-cost ventilators, and now has FDA authorization for, for a novel ventilator technology. We've I recently invested in a health security company. We funded people working on more basic things like cancer diagnostics, ultrasound imaging, and such forth. So you've started to get into this a little bit, but can you share a little bit more about the initiatives that these organizations have set forth and what excites you about the impact these organizations are having? Well, on the foundation side, I mean, it's, it's wonderful to be able to support people's ability to do fundamental research and risky research. It's also been great just to, you know, be part of this community where you try to define frontier problems. I mean, these conferences we have are, are so much fun to, to be a part of because we get small groups of people together. We're not so much asking them to share their existing research, asking them to share what are the unsolved problems, not what they've solved, but, you know, what they think should be solved. And that's very different than most scientific meetings. And I like that a lot. The participants seem to like it as well. And so that's been really terrific. As far as the investments from the family office, I, I've mentioned a few of them. And, you know, obviously a bunch of it has been pandemic related in, in the past couple of years, but we're interested in other things as well. Things around diagnostics and therapeutics that will be transformative for people. And it's all early stage, so not so much to share at this point. When selecting follow-on investments in early stage and blue sky research, it can be difficult to balance opportunity with risk. And so with your family office fund, how do you decide which challenges to continue driving towards? 
Yeah. Well, so my focus, early stage, super high risk. That's that's what I like to work on. And so, you know, our fund is evergreen. So, you know, we can keep things going as, as, as long as we feel there's a future. But sometimes it requires a bit of patience and, you know, not everything follows a straightforward path or goes the way you think. But, you know, when those things turn around, those are then the most rewarding investments at the end as well. So it's, it's, it's kind of a, a fun position to be in. And so obviously we're in a interesting point in our history right now with the ongoing pandemic, but have, has this pandemic changed any of your views over the last 20 months? Yeah. I mean, I, I think broadly speaking, it's been a, it's been a very interesting lens through which to understand how people judge risk <laughs> and boy, people are very, very different in estimating risk based on the same sort of data. Um, and often it's not based on data. That's been an interesting observation. You know, I've been absolutely astounded by how effectively the biomedical community has responded in the sense of developing vaccines and therapeutics. Things have been done on a scale of months, which used to be measured in decades. And so it's been this important proof principle that when you have sufficient motivation and will, you can bring new vaccines and therapeutics to market on timescales that, that nobody thought was possible before. And that's that's been encouraging, I think, to see that response and that wherewithal. I agree. Before we move on to the next topic, I'd like to bring this back to your own leadership as a PI and co-president of the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub and as a co-founder of numerous startups. What are your thoughts on entrepreneurship as a means of driving change in biotech and biopharma? Well, I think it's, you know, certainly in this country, absolutely essential for driving change. You know, it's, it's been, I'm sure you're seeing all these studies in your business school classes, but big companies have a hard time pivoting and changing and, and, and adapting just by their very nature of the organizational structures and, you know, their obligations to their shareholders and existing products and blah, 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 blah. Whereas entrepreneurial ventures have a single focus, it's life or death on making that thing work. And that kind of purity of focus and commitment is just really essential for, for driving change. And so, you know, I think it's not surprising that, that you've seen entrepreneurs create so much of that positive change in, in the biotech world. Thanks for tuning in BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. Going back to what you were saying earlier, Steve, about liquid biopsy and taking it even a bit further into what you might call the Theranos syndrome, we'd like to talk to you a little bit more about the space. So for over a decade now, academics, investors, and companies have been in what you might call a race to develop a simple test for cancer detection. As the scientific architect yourself behind microfluidic applications that make liquid biopsies possible, can you share with us a brief history of the space? Sure. When I think of liquid biopsies, I think of more than just cancer. I think of any blood test that replaces an invasive biopsy. You know, virtually all the liquid biopsies today are based on this phenomenon called circulating cell-free DNA and cell-free RNA. 
which was actually discovered in the late 1940s. So the fundamental physiological effect has been known for a long time. And this is just simply, we think of DNA as, you know, this privileged position in the nucleus of the cell, it's the parse list. But what happens when cells die is the DNA goes into the blood, it gets chewed up in little pieces and it circulates. And every tissue of your body contributes DNA and RNA into the blood. And it's been recognized that because tumors have different genomes, this ought to be a way to do cancer detection. Because your fetus has a different genome than you, it ought to be a way to do genetic testing on the fetus. And because your heart transplant <laughs> has a different genome than all the other cells in your body, because your heart comes from another, when you get a transplant, it comes from another person, that ought to be another way to do it. And so all these have been mechanisms that we and others have used to explore replacing invasive biopsies with blood tests. And so it depends on that physiological principle, which has been known for a long time, but marrying it with clever measurement techniques, doing molecular counting either with digital PCR or sequencing and, and finding ways to very cleverly measure properties of those molecules in the blood. And it, it, you know, there's been a literature in the cancer field that well predates the prenatal diagnostic area, but it was the prenatal test that came to market first, which I always found very interesting. And you know, I'm not sure I have a deep understanding why, but it just did. And it really sprung out of work from my lab in 2008 and earlier where we figured out how to take that cell-free DNA and sequence it, how to make libraries out of it, how to get into sequencers, how to count it. And we did that in the context of aneuploidy detection, testing for Down syndrome and things like that to replace amniocentesis. But all the techniques we developed to do that for that particular application immediately were adopted by people trying to do cancer liquid biopsies and it opened the gates for them. It was like the breakthrough they were waiting for. And then a lot of creativity from other folks sprung from that and field has advanced by leaps and bounds. And there's now more than one cancer liquid biopsy on the market and several more on their way. As you just alluded to, Steve, Blue Star Genomics recently received a breakthrough designation from the FDA for its work uh, towards identifying pancreatic cancer in its earliest stages from blood samples. And you've also previously shared your belief that we may have reliable liquid biopsies available as soon as the next year. Can you tell us what leads us to this claim and where are we today in the field? Yeah. So that's another really good example. So Blue Star, which is a company I founded, it came out of research in my lab based on detecting a chemical modification of cell-free DNA called hydroxymethylation has shown that this sort of measurement platform works for early detection of a variety of different cancers. And they went to the FDA and asked for breakthrough approval for pancreatic detection because that's one where there is no current screen. So, you know, it's, it's a very deadly cancer because it's often only detected very far along. And the thought is you can save a lot of lives if you can detect it earlier because you remove it surgically. And there's in particular a population of people who's at very high risk of pancreatic cancer. And those are people with new onset diabetes. And so the FDA has a strong interest in making sure those folks have access to some kind of screen to, to, to try to understand their risk and, and for the ones that are on the way to cancer, getting treatment as early as possible. And that's what Blue Star has been able to do. And that's why they received their, their breakthrough approval. It's very, very exciting to see that come to pass. Looking ahead, what are your thoughts on the future states of diagnosis? And do you think we might have the potential for heading off the next pandemic? Well, I hope so. You know, the whole world is now sensitized to some of the real challenges around infectious disease. And, you know, it took a while to get things ramped up testing-wise, but it's, I would say, the testing community has a full head of steam now. And, and there's a greater appreciation of the value of monitoring sort of the, the identity of, of various pathogens that are causing disease, whereas 
in the past, people might have just waited to get better, prescribed the antibiotics, and thought not so much about the diagnosis part of it. So everyone has a different mindset now, which is a good thing. And finding the right melding of diagnostic technologies with public health requirements is the art going forward. Because public health is something a little different than science, a little different than medicine. It's this you know, very tricky field of trying to get general population to do things that are in the best interest of society, which as we've seen, is not very easy. <laughs> the academic solutions often aren't the practical. Let me just put it that way. And so I think the future is going to have to involve some kind of really intimate melding of the capabilities, the technological capabilities of diagnostics with the need for a really coherent, integrated public health structure. The faith in the broader public in the scientific process and outcomes. The meteoric rise and subsequent fall of Theranos has given some in the scientific community pause, a perhaps overzealous reaction to an industry based on the failure of one player. So with Theranos as an example, how do we as an industry avoid carrying investment bias forward while also ideally avoiding previous mistakes? Yeah, Theranos is an interesting example. You know, when they were on their rise, a lot of us in the expert diagnostics community were scratching our heads saying, what are they doing? They're not publishing anything. There's no peer review. They're making all these claims. Don't get it. We're all scratching our heads. And so many of us were not particularly surprised when they crashed because there was something a little funny about how they were going about this. And, you know, diagnostics is a highly regulated industry. The notion that a college dropout could just sort of go, you know, do it is, 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 again, something one should have been very, I think, suspicious of because it requires an enormous amount of expertise to do it correctly and an enormous amount of training, regulation, oversight, so forth. Those of us, you know, watching the industry thought, oh my gosh, they're going to crater the whole field for decades. And that's not what happened. In fact, diagnostics as a field, as a place for investment has roared along and not even a bump in the road from Theranos. And I find that very interesting. And I think you know, one of the reasons is that there wasn't a lot of healthcare professional money in the company. She recruited investors from people who, who were not experts in the field. And most of the expert investors in the field, I think, kind of figured out that might not be a good investment and didn't invest. And so the investment professionals kept their powder dry for opportunities that you know were scientifically sound and rigorous and interesting. And, and, and that's why I think it, it was just a, a blip on the whole field, a momentary aberration. Speaking of that broader field in that case, can you tell us some of the technologies or advancements we've spoken of Blue Star, but others that are getting you excited in the present landscape? Yeah, coming back to a couple of the family office <laughs> of ventures investments, you know, the great potential in infectious disease. Right now, everyone's worried about COVID, but there's many other infectious diseases. And one of the things we figured out while we were doing the organ transplant work is that cell-free DNA makes for a great identifying infection in a hypothesis-free manner. So rather than having a test that tests for a particular pathogen, you can test for all pathogens at once by shotgun sequencing of cell-free DNA. And that formed the basis of a company called Carius Diagnostics, which is doing terrifically well and really going to, I think, revolutionize the way infectious disease diagnostics happens for everything outside of the pandemic, which is substantial. Similarly, the idea of looking at cell-free RNA as a way of testing for cardiometabolic disease, neurodegenerative disease, 
all that is going on in a small company called Molecular Stethoscope. And I'm very excited about that as a, as a frontier area in liquid biopsies. And we've sort of returned to where we started with pregnancy. And while my original work of pregnancy was around genetic disease, it turns out there are just enormous opportunities to help women in preterm birth and preeclampsia. And a company I founded called Mirvi is doing exactly that, again, using cell-free RNA as a diagnostic analyte. And they've made just awesome, awesome progress. And I'm very excited. I mean, I think when I survey the landscape, the take-home message is that liquid biopsies cover much, much more than just cancer. Diseases of pregnancy, of metabolism, of neurodegeneration, of infection, all going to be touched by this sort of philosophy and approach. And as someone who is pioneering so much of this work, for the for the broader landscape out there, for founders building companies in this space, or even academics working to develop new tools and technologies, do you have any broad lessons or recommendations for them? Yeah, it sort of depends what stage they're at. I mean, for people who are students or postdocs and are interested in doing something entrepreneurial here, my advice is A, to go to a startup, because at a startup, you get to see everything that's happening. When you're a big company, you're just in your little corner of the company, people have all specialized by then and you're just doing one thing. Whereas a startup, you can see the whole thing happening and you get experience of everything that's required to be an entrepreneur. And then the other piece of advice is to go to a startup where it's been venture funded and the management is experienced. So you're there with people who've done it before and you can kind of view that as your apprenticeship and, and how to do it when you're ready to strike out on your own. Steve, this has been an amazing session. But before we come to a close, I have a few last rapid fire questions to cap things off. First, do you have any advice for entrepreneurs seeking to address problems in human and global health? Yeah, global health is a challenging one because it's not clear how you build a business in many cases. And, you know, a lot of that thus far is driven by philanthropy. And so it's kind of the economics of it are, are very strange. And I think the advice there is to think about ways that are not capital intensive, but are going to have huge impact because it's just, you know, you, you don't have the same kind of economics you do in the developed world. And in generally in human health, you know, and generally I think for choosing problems, I encourage people not to pick incremental things, try to pick things that are going to be revolutionary and open up entire new fields and really change the way medicine is practiced because life is too short to do small things. Great. And building off uh, revolutionary ideas, what would you say are the greatest challenges facing the life sciences in the next 30 years? Yeah, 30 years, interesting timescale. Building on something we talked about earlier, which is how do you continue to accelerate the, the life cycle for bringing new therapies and diagnostics to market? You know, we've got these proof of principles. You can do it in a year if you really put your mind to it. How do you replicate that? outside of the pandemic. And that, if you can do that, will, among other things, in principle, really lower the cost of bringing new products to market, which will lower the cost of using them, lower cost of healthcare and create a virtuous circle. So, which leads me to another virtuous circle. Another grand challenge, I should say, is how do you find ways of lowering costs? Because the economics of healthcare in our current system are not sustainable. And in 30 years, it's just not gonna look the same as it does today. And so solving that grand challenge is a big one. And a third one, I would say, is thinking about the role of cellular therapies going forward. We're really only on the very front end of how cellular therapies are going to be used. And I think they're going to expand to areas of healthcare that 
people just aren't imagining right now. And seeing all that play out is, is, is going to be a huge challenge over the next several decades. Sticking with this you know, 30-year timeline, and as we start to address some of those challenges, describe biotech in 2050. Where do you think we will be? Oh, yeah. Predictions are difficult, especially when they're about the future, right? Isn't that one of those Yogi Berra's in there? <laughs> I have to say, when we did the NIPT stuff, the, the non-invasive prenatal testing, we published the paper in 2008, and people were asking me to make predictions about that. And I thought, you know, maybe in 10 to 20 years, there'll be a test that'll replace amniocentesis. It really only took three or four years. And it happened so much faster than I could have predicted. So it's, it's, it's really hard to make these predictions on decade-long timescales because some things just really pick up and roar along and it it's, it's, can be hard to predict them. I think, you know, a few things, I mean, I talked a bit about cellular therapies. I think they're going to be more routine. I think the use of biologics is going to be transformed. And the way we take aspirin now, people will be using biologics. They've become cheaper and easier. And, you know, they won't be these, you know, $100,000 treatments or multi-$100,000 treatments. They'll be, you know, $50 treatments and $100 treatments. And so the role of biologics, I think, is going to be transformed in 30 years for sure. And in terms of diagnostics, we're all hopefully going to save a lot of lives. Um, by early detection of disease and not just pregnancy, not just cancer, but things like fatty liver disease, things like heart disease, things like neurodegeneration, all those by early detection will be improving quality of life and saving lives. I'm looking forward to see how some of those technologies you mentioned play out. Before we go, are there any other closing thoughts and how can our audience learn more about your work? Well, you know, if you're interested in reading the scientific literature, all my papers are on my webpage. <laughs> you can go to my webpage at Stanford and start reading them. But also for more general audiences, I have a number of talks up on YouTube and whatnot where uh, I give the, the kind of overview of my research. Right. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for an absolutely fantastic episode. I'm sure our listeners will be craving more. We're really grateful for your time and just want to thank you again. It's been my pleasure. Great to chat. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing what you guys do next. Thanks for tuning in BIOS community. Sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.